Anyway, it's great to have Devin Smith with, uh, Smith with us tonight. And uh, Devin uh, is a pastor. Uh, he's over across the Columbia River in, in Oregon. Is it uh, Trinity Reformed? Good name. <laughs> and he's out this evening to, to share with us, preach. Um, he's working right now on something called the Blue State Conference, which is fun to think about. So those of us in blue states who are constantly taunted and cajoled and solicited and, you know, tempted to move to a red state or, you know, talk to people when we talk to people from red states. Well, we're, we're here to let them know that um, the Macedonian call, you know, it's all about, you know, come over and help us. You know, we're, we're here in a blue state uh, where, uh, you know, the conditions aren't necessarily associated uh, with Christianity. And I want you to know, basically, my entire pastoral ministry has been in blue, what we would call blue state contexts. So I'm perfectly at home, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I know there's kind of the great sort going on. I don't know if you've heard the term, the great sort. Uh, lots of people moving to different parts of the country that are more congenial to the way people think and, and, and uh, live. Anyway, uh, nevertheless, there are those of us who are called to be where we are. And so Devin's working on a conference that will focus on that. I'll be one of the speakers, Bo Cog will be another, and so forth. Anyway, so that's something to look forward to, and that's in April, right? What's the dates? April 19th and 20th. April 19th and 20th. So go ahead and circle that on your calendar. It'll be right down the way. Uh, what, where do we think it's going to be? Do, I know you were working yeah, on we, that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, in the middle of Beaverton. It's a church there. Okay. We so the we know where there. that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. Well, Devin, why don't you come on up and share with us? Okay. Well, good evening. There's one other date that I want to just kind of put on your radar, which is um, our third annual Gloria Sancta Conference, which is, um, we've been doing this for some time. It's, it's, it's part of the, what I would just simply call like the Blue State Project. We need to coordinate, we need to be organized in terms of helping our young people to network with each other. Um, so we've done this for two years where we just invite reformed, youth from around you know, Oregon, Washington, and, and we've had people come from California, um, some from Idaho, and just so that they can, they can you know, know that there's other reformed people out there and, and also that there's people of the opposite sex out there. That, that, and um, so far, the Lord has blessed that. We've had a number of marriages that have come out of that. So the, the age of that is from about 20 to 30. Um, and that's going to be in July, July, I think it's 24th to 27th around that time. And I'll send some information up to you guys, but you're, you're welcome. If you have some people that age that would be interested in meeting some other people their age, then, then I would encourage you to, to look at that. Um, well, I'm pleased to be with you and share um, a psalm with you. We sang right there at the beginning, Psalm 139. I'm going to read for you. Uh, the word of the Lord, and I would invite you to give it your most careful attention. Psalm 139, and I'm reading in the ESV. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that this word that has been sown would bear the fruit that you intend, that our hearts would receive it, would believe it, and would apply it to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is 24 verses, and I only have a short amount of time. And um, I will not have time to spare uh, looking at every single clause and idea in this psalm. And I would rather like to take the time to, uh, that I have with you this evening, and I commend you for being here this evening, uh, or true brothers here. <laughs> the Lord's Day should have great weight with God's people, and, I, and it's commendable to see you all here. And I believe, um, though, that the, 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 what I want to do with this evening, though, is, is look at the argument of this poem and prayer. And I believe that in doing that, then you can go and you can look at the smaller parts of this poem and perhaps it'll make more sense to you as you see, see the whole. Psalm 139, I trust, is a beloved psalm with you. It's a favorite of many. And I don't know about you, but I suspect that like me, there's certain psalms that you have a deep attachment to, maybe even an emotional attachment. When someone says, we're going to sing Psalm 16 or Psalm 23, which we did this evening, or Psalm 139, then maybe that like you feel good. Like, yeah, I'm ready to do that. This, these are things I'm ready to say. These are, there's phrases in here that echo my spirit and how I feel toward God. It's encouraging. And I feel that way about Psalm 139. It's beautiful. And some of the phrases are, I believe, among some of the most beautiful expressions of a saint's relationship with God. 
Now, many of us know this psalm. This is a place you turn because it's profound in its theology. It's teaching about who God is and his omniscience and omnipotence. This is a psalm that you turn to for some of the most beautiful expressions of God's omniscience, his, the fact that he is all-knowing, knows, knows everything. For instance, verse 4, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Or his omnipresence. It's also found here in this psalm. Beautiful. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? It's rhetorical. There's nowhere. Nowhere you can go. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. It's often looked to as well as a beautiful expression of the preciousness of human life. Man is made in the image of God. Man is precious to God. The life of Humans are precious. It says here, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me. Sometimes that's translated, you knit me in my mother's wombs. The psalmist says famously that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. He describes a God who makes life like a master artist. Another preacher pointed out to me as I was listening this, that in the Vulgate, Okay, the common Latin translation of the Bible. The Hebrew phrase that is translated here, wonderful me, it is translated into Latin, acupictus sum. Any Latin? I'm not going to do that to you. But it's, we would translate that something like, I am painted as with a needle. I am painted as with a needle. And this image there, what Jerome was getting at, is this idea that God is this master painter, and he has beautifully made. Now, I don't believe that necessarily reflects exactly the Hebrew idea, but it's a beautiful image there, and I think it captures the idea. Little embryo forming in the mother's womb, cell by cell, little heart fluttering, the brain beginning to fire. God is a master workman on the tiniest of canvases. And the closer you look, the more amazing the design. Each cell itself, a masterpiece of engineering, down to the smallest little automated self-assembling little proteins that move materials around the cell. God is truly wonderful. And this is a poem, above all poems, to celebrate that. But then you come to these verses. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. Now, I don't know of a single book by a creation scientist, Canham, uh, sorry, not Canham, Kenham, uh, Michael Behe, you know, these guys, or any creation scientist that delves into the glory of God and creation and ends with, therefore, having looked at all these wonderful truths of our great creator God, oh God, would you kill all the wicked people? Kill all the wicked people. And they're, I know there are many poems and songs and hymns which quote sections of this poem. You could probably search on Spotify or Apple Music for Psalm 139 and you'll get sections of this and beautiful expressions. And people have put this to, to music. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, but they often will stop when they get to verse 19. And I think it's frankly because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with it. They understand that other part, that other part, you know. I don't know of any chapters in the book Jesus Calling that make use of this kind of language from Scripture. 
And it's a shocking translation, honestly. Now, we need to avoid the crass idea, and I call it crass, that this is just somehow Bible talk. You know, they're just, they're just waxing about God and, and, and His omniscience and His omnipresence and His, His handiwork and creation. And then, well, it's the Bible, so what do we do? Let's add some imprecatory language in here because that's what the Bible is. And I think we, we need to be really careful as we read through of just kind of rolling right over these things and going, oh yeah, those Bible authors, look at them go. They always add these kinds of things to the poems. Or perhaps someone might think crassly, oh, they, they lived in the Iron Age. Those were brutal times. Or worse, what, what I call, uh, this is a common heresy, oh, those Old Testament people. Those Old Testament people. You know, how little they know of Jesus' love or something like that. One day they'll learn. I prefer to think that one... The prayer is inspired and good and true in what it affirms and the values and priorities and even the emotions we ought to strive after. Whatever is being put forward here in terms of human expression and emotion and adoration and its feelings towards God and the thoughts towards God that we would do right to imitate and pursue. These are righteous sentiments. And two... There is a logic that flows from A to B. If you think about it, A, you formed my inward parts, you know me. B, oh, that you would slay the wicked. And rather than believe what is unbelievable, that God's poems and the Psalms are randomly assembled series of independent expressions, have no logic to them, okay? Now, they're not essays. We want to be careful. They're not essays, but... They're not random. They're not just a random bunch of sentiments that are all thrown together. I would try to discern some form of a logic here. Why are these things set side by side? I think it's instructive for us. And I just want to make two observations. I think that'll help us to understand the heavenly logic here. The first observation is this. There is a form, a logical progression from the indicatives of part a to the imperatives of part B, okay? So if nothing else, you just simply see that he's speaking in a certain mode of thought. These are indicatives. This is true. This is true. This is true. And then he turns there, do this, do this, do this. And so somehow these truths lead him to call upon God to do certain things. You are this God. You have been this I will do this, and so forth. But then in part B, oh, that you would do this. Slay the wicked, depart from me, bloodthirsty men, search me, O oh God. So part of the logic is that the statements of fact in the first part lead the psalmist to seek the actions of the second part. If A is true, and I know it's true, and I believe it's true, that I'm driven to ask for the kinds of things in the second part. I'm driven to ask for the kinds of things in the second part. That's my first observation, a change in mood that takes place in the poem. The second observation is this. This is 
something that was kind of startling to me because I've never thought of this. If people had asked me, what is Psalm 139? The first thing I would have said, it tells us all about God, all about God. That is a psalm to go to if you want to learn about God. But did you notice as I was reading it, how much it talks about David? It's about David. This is a psalm that is as much about David's life as it is about God's greatness. Just notice a few verses. I'll, I only need to read a few verses and you start to go, yeah. Look, O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought from afar. You comprehend my path. My lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. The point is Psalm 139 is not primarily just an abstract stepping back considering God and His absolute nature and all His attributes and His glory. You can go to Psalm 139 and learn those things, but that's not what it is. It is a consideration of those things in an utterly profound way. He's considering how those things relate to himself. The ways in which the infinite and almighty God knows David, is present with David, has exercised his power and care toward David. And by implication... And by implication, the same to all of us here as well. The same is true with us. It's not merely a meditation on God, but on God with us, God over us, God at work in us. And when you consider the poem from that perspective, God knows everything there is to know, not just about everything, that's true, but to know about me, to know about David, to know about all of us, it staggers the mind. And that is what drives him to say, this kind of knowledge is too wonderful for me. Not considering your omniscience, your omnipresence, absolutely, but considering that in my life, I've never been outside of your thoughts, I've never been outside of your presence, outside of your care, in concern, I've never taken a step except you're right there looking upon me. God is always there, has always been there, always will be there. Even after his life is over, verse 18, when I awake, I am still with you. And there's two different ways to take that, but one way to take that would be when I finally rise from the, from the dead. Even there, even there. I descend to Sheol, when I come back out, who's the first person I'm going to see? You. You've always been with me. There's not a point in his life or in the life to come when God is not the central person in his life. And that's the context. That's the, the matrix out of which flows this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O oh Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. 
And I think that we, we can now understand a little bit more of why David is speaking like this, why he's saying these kinds of things against the wicked. He is a man that we know after God's own heart. He is loyal to God above all else. When he turns to consider the fact that so many around him are wicked and have no thoughts of God, in fact, even speak against God, take his name in vain, some even hating God, despising him. And he holds that and he looks, that's his context. That's what he's thinking. This is, this is where I live. These are the people I live. And he comes back to this who God has been to me, the loyalty he's shown to me, the presence he's, he, he has demonstrated towards me, the goodness he's shown towards me. And these people have no thought of you. You see where his loyalty is, where his loyalty lies. A profound observation. I don't, I don't know if you guys have read the book, Eve in Exile, um, Becca Merkel. Uh, good book, really, really good book. She turned it into a documentary. It's fantastic. Um, highly recommended. But she made the observation that there are many in culture who are trying to make a compelling argument that based on your identity, in the case of that book, identity as women, that there ought to be some kind of a loyalty between women over against men. And she, contemplating that, says that in her life, this, is, this, is, this would be absurd, that she would have some kind of a loyalty to these people out there simply on the basis of some kind of shared identity, that they're all women, over against the relationship to the man that she has been in covenant with, that she's lived with, that she has shared life with, that she's had children with. And these people are trying to convince her, like, no, you need to have more loyalty to your group out here as opposed to this. And she's like, this is, this is the person I share life with. And in the same way, listen, although God is invisible, he's more near to any of us than any other person in our lives. He knows us more. He's been there longer, will be there longer shows more concern, more care. There is no one in our lives that is closer to us than God, that has been more loyal to us than God, that has shown more favor to us than God. And would we have loyalty to just simply our identity group, just because they're like us, just because they, they live around us, because we can see them with our eyes? Where is our loyalty? It also explains the final petition, and you can understand why he ends this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And in these words, another, you know, Stepping aside from the imprecatory, he turns in on himself. David recognizes that the threat to God's glory, the God of his life, is not only found in the wicked around him, but also in his own heart. This is not unlike that famous aphorism, 
Everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to do the dishes, right? It would be one thing for David to say, out there, get rid of all the unbelief, all the disregard for you, but have no concern about the disregard and remaining rot and corruption and sin in his own heart. His loyalty to God necessarily drives him not only to look out there, but to turn in on himself and look at his own heart and say, this is inconsistent with who God has been in my life. God, show it to me. God, remove it. Be done with it. Help me to put it to death. G.K. Chesterton said that a good man goes to war not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. The soul's affection for God. If we are to have true virtue, if we are to experience the sort of righteousness, I'm sorry, the sort of righteous hatred that is described here, and the sort of righteous invitation to self-discipline and scrutiny, God must be everything to us. The challenge, of course, is that we are a mixture of loves and affections and desires and thoughts. But if you simply try to take up the verses, the imprecatory prayers, and the self without thought of God above all, it's going to form something very different, perhaps even something destructive in your heart. It must come from a love and loyalty to God. And I just want to finish here with a few points of application that I would press upon you. One, here's a point of self-evaluation. As we read this and consider this, you need to consider whether such things are active and alive in your own life. This is not merely a consideration of a specimen of some righteous man that lived 3,000 years ago in the Middle East. What does this say of me? What do I see in myself when set over against this? Do you feel, do I feel animosity towards the wicked primarily because they're an annoyance to me? Or does it come out of your loyalty to the Lord? It is, of course, possible for both to be true. The wicked can be quite annoying. Sometimes David prays for justice because someone is unjustly persecuting him. But very often what is shown is that in his prayers, imprecatory or not, his prayers come out of a place of his loyalty to God, his being a man after God's own heart. And I think that's the proper posture for us. In that posture of loyalty to God, imprecatory prayers make more sense. Second, this is a meditation. This is, this is work to do this kind of thinking. Psalm 139 is a skillful poem and meditation on the attributes of God, but it's more than that. It's also a contemplation of his own life. He's taking things he knows to be true, and he's taking his own life in context, and he's doing the hard work of weaving those two things together. It's one thing to just read systematic theologies. It's a whole other thing 
and a much, much harder work to read these truths about God and to stop and go, what does this mean in terms of my life, in terms of what I think is right and wrong, in terms of how I'm living, in terms of the things I love or don't love, the things I even hate. That takes work. And that takes effort. I believe that the Psalms are given to us. Psalm 1, as we also sang this evening, sets this whole course of like, blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. It is a book of singing, rejoicing. Uh, we do that. But it's also a book of meditations. It is, ex it, it is not only content for us to learn from, but it's also an example to us. The psalmists have put in the work of thinking about God, thinking about his law, thinking about things that they know to be true, and doing the hard work of applying it to their context and their life situation. So I would encourage you to do the same. Even tonight, even after everything we've said, you realize there's still a gap between these things that you know to be true that you've read here in Psalm 139 in your own life. And I can't do that work for you. I could be the most skillful preacher in applying things and weaving them into your life. Your life is filled with 10,000 intricacies. You have to do that work. That is what the hard work of meditation requires. Applying the Word of God to your own life, the things you know to be true. So I would, continue, I, I, I would, I would encourage you to do that. The third thing, and finish with this, is the cost of holiness here. There is a kind of pain that comes from this. This is a beautiful expression in this. But it's heavy. It's painful. Holiness is difficult for those like all of us who are by nature unholy. The light is not our natural environment. We're creatures by nature of the dark. We're nocturnal by nature. We resist the daylight. Inviting God, okay, so first contemplating Him and then inviting His scrutiny into our lives to look upon us in His brilliance and His glory is going to hurt. It's going to be painful, especially since it inevitably is going to include within it some form of change, some kind of confession that needs to be made, some kind of alteration in your life, sometimes even just an outright repentance. It's not comfortable. It produces pain. It produces conflict. When you step into the light, you are by nature in going to be in conflict with all those around you who just simply want to remain in the dark. It's easier, it would have been easier for David, it's easier for us to just go with the flow. But if you step into the light of God's holiness and fellowship with Him, it's going to be challenging to you. God even sometimes loves his saints so much that he hands them over to some of the natural consequences of their sins 
so that they would come to even hate their sins the more and thus turn from their sin and walk in the way everlasting, chastened, even a bit traumatized. The way of holiness is hard. You'd be beat up and bruised. I don't know many saints walking in, you know, their middle age and old age that don't have a limp, that don't have bruises, pain. But holy and everlasting joy is worth it. To do that, you must walk in the light. You must invite God to search you, to know your heart. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but it is still a yoke. It is still a burden. There's still a cost of building the tower, buying the pearl of great price and the field with the treasure. And there's no question that it's worth it. That's the point of all those stories and teachings. But we must understand that it does come with a cost. And woe to him who doesn't consider the cost. Brothers and sisters, I pray that your loyalty to God would be profound and deep and true. And I pray that your meditations of God and his involvement in your life would be continual and true and profound and deep. And above all, I pray that you would embrace the light, invite God's searching of your own heart and life and motive and receive the discipline of the Lord. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. May God be glorified in the preaching of his good news.